I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. I want to welcome Rebecca Lisner to The Truth of the Matter to talk about her new book with Mira Rapp Hooper, An Open World. Rebecca is a non-resident scholar at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University, and she's an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Rebecca, welcome to The Truth of the Matter. Why this book now? Is this a foreign policy response to President Trump, or would you have taken this on regardless of whoever was president? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here and to join for this conversation. And I ought to give the requisite disclaimer, which is that everything I say here, I'm just speaking in my personal capacity, not on behalf of any of the institutions with which I am affiliated. This is a great question. So I'm here to talk to you today about an open world, how America can win the contest for 21st century order, which is a book coming out with Mira Rapp Hooper. And this book makes the case that the U.S. needs to reimagine its foreign policy for a post-pandemic and potentially post-Trump world before it is too late. And Mira and I actually began this book together in the immediate wake of the 2016 election, when it was already clear to us that Donald Trump himself was more an avatar than an architect of the major upheavals that were affecting the United States, both domestically and internationally. And even if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, she too would have faced the same set of challenges, adverse global power shifts that were redounding to the United States' disadvantage, rapid technological change amidst innovation, and also growing domestic political dysfunction at home. And so this book always set out to really address and debunk two pieces of conventional wisdom. The first was the idea that Donald Trump himself was solely responsible for the collapse of American influence and crisis in American foreign policy and international order. And second, the idea that the United States could somehow revert to business as usual once Donald Trump would leave office in 2021 or 2024. So by investigating those long-term trends that I just mentioned, our book actually anticipated the foreign policy emergency that the United States now so clearly faces. Because COVID has illustrated our central thesis with tragic clarity. The American foreign policy that we've had for the past several decades and the so-called liberal international order that it has sought to sustain are simply not suited to 21st century challenges and a new approach is needed. So- The subtitle of the book, of course, is How America Can Win the Contest for 21st Century Order, but the title's an open world. What does that mean exactly in your title? So an open world refers to the strategy that our book seeks to put forward, and that is a strategy that allows the United States to secure its most vital national interests, even though it has lost economic and military primacy. So what an open world means is that countries interact with each other on terms that are open and transparent. 
That means that all states ought to be able to make free and independent political decisions, that states should join together to cooperate in open and transparent international institutions that are modernized for 21st century challenges, and that the global commons of sea and space remain open to access and penetration. It therefore opposes the possibility of domination of any major global regions by a hostile state or set of states. It opposes foreign interference in domestic political processes, and it opposes the possibility that foreign countries might close off vital waterways or information spaces to outside access. And in enumerating all of those objectives, it becomes clear that there's really only one country in the world that can achieve that kind of closure, and that country is China. China has the capabilities increasingly to dominate parts of its region in Asia, but it also has the ability to close off information spaces, for example, by controlling the digital infrastructure that countries around the world will use for their telecommunications. So an openness strategy seeks to foreclose that possibility that China would either close off its region or close off waterways or close off vital information spaces, but it doesn't seek to prevent China from having any influence at all. So it accepts the reality of a more powerful China and the need to live alongside it, seek cooperation where mutual interests dictate, but fundamentally that the United States must lead in the pursuit of an open world. So physical space examples would include, of course, the South China Sea, something the Americans aren't very familiar with right now is the Mekong Delta issues. Of course, we have the Belt and Road. Tell us about the information spaces. So this is a really important question because historically we've thought of spheres of influence in primarily geographic terms. And that was certainly the framework that was used during the Cold War and before. We've always talked about wanting to prevent the domination of the Eurasian landmass by a hostile adversary. But in the 21st century, territory just doesn't mean what it used to. And For China to exercise its power overseas, perhaps it will seek territorial land grabs like in Taiwan. You know, perhaps it will seek to close off these vital waterways. Both of those things, you know, would be of grave disinterest to American foreign policy. But it also has the possibility of creating closed spheres of dominance in information spaces. And that could come about because of Chinese control of 5G technology, for example, that it's building overseas. And by controlling that type of digital infrastructure, China will have the opportunity to potentially siphon off data and information for its domestic governmental use, to potentially suborn local government officials, and to exercise other forms of coercion. So when we're talking about the types of dominance that American foreign policy needs to guard against in the 21st century, we can't just think in physical terms. We also need to think in technological and commercial terms, because that's the type of great power competition that we're actually facing. It's not just a Cold War redux. Now, you talk also in the book about domestic factors facing and upending the U.S. role in the world. What do you mean by that? Why is our so-called domestic dysfunction so dangerous for U.S. foreign policy? 
Domestic dysfunction is so dangerous for American foreign policy because it's causing the United States to operate well below its own capacity, not only at home, but also overseas. This is because we're spending too much time and attention on problems at home and not being able to devote attention to abroad. Or So it's not just about focusing inward. It's about the ways in which different types of domestic divisions are undermining America's capacity to act internationally. So let me give you sort of two key trends. The first has to do with partisan polarization, which is a long-term trend that has been worsening over time. And it has many pernicious consequences, but some of them operate very specifically in the foreign policy space. For example, the wide gulf that separates Democrats and Republicans can prevent the development and execution of long-term strategy that defends American interests and values. It can lead to dramatic swings in American foreign policy whenever the White House changes hands between a Democrat and a Republican. And perhaps most gravely, it allows irresponsible decisions on the part of political leaders without any electoral recourse. And we've seen this and the implications of this more recently with foreign election interference, where adversaries like Russia have keyed in on these divides that separate Americans from each other. They've exploited them to try to undermine our democracy. But the fact of partisan polarization has actually made the Republican Party reluctant to crack down on this foreign meddling because Russia intervened in support of their own political leader, Donald Trump. So that's very great, but that's only one type of division that is hobbling American foreign policy. The other division is the one that separates Washington from its domestic innovation base and its technology sector in Silicon Valley. And for decades, the U.S. government has underinvested in research and development, in basic research. It's now far below where its Cold War levels were. And that has led technology companies to actually chase foreign markets and chase profits overseas rather than aligning themselves with the American interests and the types of opportunities we should be seeking as a nation. Meanwhile, the U.S. government has also allowed its own technological knowledge to atrophy and underregulated its technology companies. So these two trends come together, I think, with the COVID pandemic, which actually shows that these domestic dysfunctions and this domestic underinvestment is even worse than we knew. You see that there are paltry federal medical equipment stockpiles, poor state and local capacity. There's been a really ineffective attempt to launch a tech-enabled contact tracing program, and the very public health response itself, like the wearing of masks, has become politicized. So altogether, I think this amounts to a consistent picture, which is of a United States that still remains quite mighty by many metrics. It still has you know, largest GDP in the world by some measures, a predominant military, still has dollar dominance, but it's performing tragically below its own capacity because it is so hobbled by these divisions at home. So you argue in the book that major international forces were already reshaping U.S. foreign policy before the pandemic. How are power shifts and technological change transforming geopolitics in your telling? So American primacy was already waning before the COVID pandemic, as West-East power shifts and technological change were fueling China's rise and undermining a U.S.-led international order that simply no longer reflected the global distribution of power. So China is a key player in this story. Its economy is already the world's largest by some measures and is expected to continue to grow. Its military has expanded in parallel with its astronomic economic growth. 
And it rose within the U.S.-led order, but it now seeks to revise that order to reflect its own power and preferences. And just a minute ago, you mentioned the South China Sea, which is a really good example of how China is now trying to remake the Asian regional order by effectively trying to turn the South China Sea into a Chinese lake. Meanwhile, the existing order has become rapidly outdated because of technological change, which in many ways require new forms of international governments that have just not been forthcoming. For example, there are no meaningful global rules to address cyber activity, like norms around attacks on states' critical infrastructures or electricity grids. The internet remains vastly undergoverned. For example, there are no agreed upon global rules about protections of your personal data when you use foreign-owned apps like TikTok on your phone. And also AI and automation, like what are the global guardrails to govern the use of autonomous weapons in conflict? So these two trends actually intersect with each other because as technology becomes a central theater of great power competition between the U.S. and China, we're going to see China try to write the global rules that protect its own model of techno-authoritarianism and also advance its own commercial interests globally. So to prevent that from happening, the United States needs to mount an effective strategic response. Well, tell us about the openness strategy that you're advocating. That's part of the response, correct? Yes, absolutely. So that is the response. An openness strategy recognizes in many ways, and for the reasons that I just mentioned, that the U.S.-led international system is already under duress. But to prevent the total collapse of international order and the proliferation of greater disorder that might come if the United States retreats from leadership, it instead advocates that the United States move towards a more disciplined, more realistic, forward-looking approach to leadership. So what that means in practice is moving away from some of the post-Cold War frameworks that have really dominated American foreign policy making for the past several decades. And in particular, this idea of liberal universalism, which is to say the idea that the United States can and should spread its own liberal democratic model to all corners of the world. It's now become clear that there are very powerful authoritarian rivals who have participated in the U.S.-led order, who exist within it, but who are not themselves liberalizing. And so an openness strategy is clear-eyed about the challenges there and seeks to remake American foreign policy and also remake the international order in a way that takes those challenges seriously. So in terms of what that actually means for policy, it dictates, broadly speaking, a three-part agenda. The first is American renewal, the need to reinvest in the American people, the American economy, and the American democracy by trying to bridge those very divides that we just discussed between the tech sector and the federal government and to the extent that it's possible, the polarization that divides Americans of different parties from each other. The United States needs to prepare itself for international competition in this new age by really reimagining American foreign policy in a way that really moves away from the over-militarization of American foreign policy that we've seen over the past several decades and elevates diplomacy, public-private partnerships, and a new approach to intelligence collection that really leverages America's domestic innovation in new ways. And also to lead in remaking a modernized international order, because just protecting ourselves at home is not gonna be sufficient. 
So the U.S. needs to lead in trying to build new governance for these emerging technology spaces. It needs to try to modernize the global trade regime. And it also needs to lead on these borderless challenges like climate, like global health, pandemics, where some great power cooperation may actually be possible. So how's this different, though, from past American grand strategy? You said that, you know, this is a different approach than we've taken in the past several decades. How is it different than past American grand strategy in foreign policy? So the idea of openness has echoes in past American grand strategies, to be sure. And in fact, at the end of World War II, as FDR was articulating his vision for a post-war world, he used the idea of openness. The problem was that shortly thereafter, the Iron Curtain descended and much of Europe went behind the Soviet sphere and it became an impermeable closed sphere of influence that no longer could be accessed by the United States really commercially or militarily. So that was really the death of the openness vision in the Cold War era. And then once the Cold War ended, the U.S. actually sought something much more ambitious than openness. It had these ideas, these aspirations of liberal universalism, the idea that not just openness, but actually liberalism was going to be in ascendant and that its rise was in many ways inexorable. And that was the idea that drove Fukuyama, for example, to pronounce the end of history. That ran aground, as we've seen quite recently, and is no longer a feasible model for American foreign policy and what we can hope to achieve in the world. So now the U.S. has a pretty stark choice. Donald Trump has offered an alternative vision of what American foreign policy could be. It's one that rejects many of the core principles of openness. It's one that embraces closure. It embraces nationalism. It embraces walling America off from the world in all sorts of different ways. That would be a mistake. And it's hard to imagine a Trump administration, even in a second term, implementing some version of an openness strategy. But there is an alternative. There is a version of American leadership that rejects that types of closure and nationalism, that also rejects the sort of nostalgia that would like to see us revert to those immediate post-Cold War liberal universalist ambitions, and instead articulates a new way forward that returns to these principles of openness that have animated American foreign policy in the past but have never been fully realized. So is it sort of a hybrid or how are you taking into account the new realities that we're facing yet trying to preserve the liberalism of old? So I think the most instructive way to differentiate an openness strategy from what's come before would be to compare it to the Obama administration, because of all the recent administrations, that is the one that probably comes closest to what we're talking about, but is still in many ways quite different. So it's important first to understand that the United States position is profoundly different today than it was when Barack Obama took office 12 years ago. At that time, the U.S. still was the world's sole superpower, but we're not anymore. So an openness strategy needs to really recognize that reality. It needs to reject any kind of nostalgia and it needs to chart a new course. So what does that mean? It means that looking at the power shifts, looking at the technological change, and looking at the domestic dysfunction, we need to have more focus and we need to have more discipline. So Obama administration, as you know, sought to change the regime in Libya through an armed military intervention. That type of armed regime change is not something that an openness strategy would do. 
precisely because it prioritizes an open international system, but does not seek to change the character of other regimes and try to make them look more liberal, then it therefore means that we don't attempt the types of Iraq war style or Libya style regime changes that we've seen throughout many post-Cold War presidencies in the past. At the same time, there are important distinctions to be made about China policy because an openness strategy really focuses Washington on the threat of closure, but accepts the reality of greater Chinese influence. Whereas the Obama administration did not act strongly enough in response to China's early attempts to close off parts of the South China Sea, an openness strategy would actually take a much tougher line. At the same time, the Obama administration declined to participate in AIIB, which was a multilateral attempt by China to propagate sort of a new development institution. But an openness strategy would try to engage with AIIB and try to make it more open, more transparent, and more consistent with principles of good governance. So by really establishing the bright line of what constitutes closure that must be resisted, but also what constitutes growing Chinese influence, which is just a reality of the world that we now live in, the openness strategy departs in pretty significant ways, recognizing that the world of 2020 is really a far cry from 2009, let alone 2016 or 1991. So America's in a very different place now than when Barack Obama was president. And you know, President Trump's foreign policy has been very much in America first, looking inward. That's been reflected in his trade policies, in his posture with our allies, and we could go on and on. It's not so easy to turn the switch on and off between administrations as we've seen in our history. So whenever President Trump leaves office, how does the strategy get implemented without completely upending everything that's happened before it? So to my mind, the greatest challenge that faces the implementation of an openness strategy if Trump loses in November is the mere fact of the multi-front crises that a Biden administration would face coming in. So for better or worse, it's actually quite easy for American presidents to change foreign policies. It's an area in which the chief executive has considerable prerogative. So things like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement or rejoining or renegotiating the JCPOA. Those things are actually fairly easy for a new Biden administration to do. But the harder thing, I think, will be for them to confront what is public health crisis, an economic crisis, and a racial justice crisis that will all be landing on their desks the very day that they walk into the White House. And to try to find this space to do the type of long-term strategizing that would be required to really seize the opportunity that the United States has to take this vast global moment of destruction and try to turn it into a moment of creation. That's really interesting. I've got one last question, and this is the tough one, because you finished your book before COVID really reached our shores. And as I was going through the book, I was wondering, and I'm sure a lot of your readers are going to wonder, does COVID change your conclusions? Such a great question and the perfect place to end. So yes, this book was completed before the COVID emergency really took over. But nevertheless, I think that its analysis stands up quite well because the COVID crisis has actually both accelerated and accentuated many of the trends that we highlight in the book. So we knew that 
great power competition and these long-term power shifts were going to make U.S.-China relations more competitive. But COVID has actually made that rivalry sharpen much more quickly than we would have expected. We expected that to play out perhaps over the next decade. And instead, you've seen the vitriol turned up very quickly as a result of the COVID crisis. Similarly, we knew that partisan polarization was hindering American foreign policy for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. But to see the way in which it has hobbled the United States public health response and even inflected debates over whether Americans should wear masks in the workplace or around their towns, that has become a highly partisan issue and it has made it much harder for the United States to get COVID under control. So all of that is to say that we did expect that the United States was going to face a really challenging 21st century environment, and COVID has shown just how challenging it is. But I think COVID also shows that there is still some very significant elements of American advantage. The U.S. dollar remains quite strong. The U.S. military remains quite strong. And no other country has emerged as a leader that can operate in the absence of the United States, which is part of why we've seen such a lacking global crisis response to COVID. And so the opportunity to build back better from this wreckage really does lay in front of us. And it's a question of whether the United States is going to seize that opportunity. And if it does, the thesis of this book is that the best way to do it is to pursue an openness strategy, an openness strategy that is forward-looking, that is clear-eyed about the threats that American fa- America faces, and that also departs from some of the mistakes and also the misguided assumptions that have guided American foreign policy in the past. Thank you so much. Rebecca, for this really fascinating discussion. And I know that our listeners are going to go out and buy not just one, but two copies of your book because it would make a great gift. And, you know, people really need to read this because it's the next thing in foreign policy. So really appreciate your time today. The book is An Open World, How America Can Win the Contest for 21st Century Order by Rebecca Lisner and Mira Rapp Hooper. Thanks so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about your analysis. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 